And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Cornelis Venema. He is president of Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Dr. Venema, it's so good to have you on with us again today. Well, it's great to have the opportunity. I'm pleased to, to join with your listeners. Before our phone call today, I had a call from my own pastor, and I said, I got an interview coming up. He said, oh, who, who is it with? I said, Dr. Venema. He said, oh, he's good. <laughs> he says, I, I was in a room with him once or something like that. And so uh, he was very pleased that we could talk together today. Now, uh, you just um, just recently, I think, uh, did another book. And I'm wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit about your book today. And uh, it's published with PNR Publishing and I believe it's called Christ and Covenant Theology. Um, so I'm wondering if you could get us started. Um, you know, I, I do want to say this, though, before we get started. Um, it took me a while in my personal life to appreciate covenant theology. Um, and on the other side of it, looking back, not that I have a full understanding, uh, it's warm, it's gracious, it has the feel and texture of our Heavenly Father coming down and putting his arms around us, making us his child, and endearing himself to us. So I just want to present that as, as some of my, my perceptions as, as having come through converting, if you will, to a, to a more full-orbed biblical view. Well, that uh, allows me to make a general comment about the book, Christ and Covenant Theology. I initially had the title Christ and the Covenants due to the historic distinction that's often made between the relationship of the triune God to all of humanity and Adam and the fellowship that he established with us in Adam and the breaking of that relationship through Adam's sin and transgression and its consequence in terms of coming under the judgment and curse of God and being separated and banished in a manner of speaking from paradise and fellowship with God, that that covenant relationship is what God ultimately seeks to reestablish and restore with the new humanity, the elect in Jesus Christ, who is really in his person and work, the one through whom fellowship and communion and a reintroduction into a life relationship of blessing with God is accomplished. And my interest in writing the book, among other things, was not only to address a number of issues relating to the doctrine of the covenants in Scripture, but as Sinclair Ferguson, I'm dropping a name now, who wrote a foreword graciously for me to the book, uh, I think rightly observes uh, one of the stumbling blocks often for people when the subject of covenant and covenant theology comes up is they think of it as something cold and abstract. They don't recognize that you can talk about covenant without using the word. If you talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, you're talking about the one who is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament. Paul speaks of Christ as the one in whom all of the promises have their yes and their amen. 
And as he argues in Galatians, the seed whom God promised Abraham, the father of all believers, is our Lord Jesus Christ himself, through whom the grace of adoption and reintroduction into God's household and family is accomplished. And so as believers who are joined to Christ by faith, uh, we fall heir to that promise and become, whether Jew or Gentile alike, members again of God's covenant community, no longer as we were in Adam, uh, objects of God's wrath, strangers and aliens from that communion and fellowship with God for which we were first created. I'm summarizing in a way uh, the main theme of, of the book, uh, but I do want to underscore, as I noted just a moment ago, that I don't want the uh, terminology of covenant theology to stand in the way of uh, understanding. Uh, that is to say, as though covenant theology is an abstract system that we superimpose on the scriptures. Uh, rather, I would like to argue the story of God's work in redemption fulfilled ultimately in Christ is, I think it has to be acknowledged, a story of reintroducing uh, those whom he uh, saves into uh, new and secure and uh, ultimately unbreakable fellowship through Christ with the living God and by his indwelling spirit. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Uh, the big words sometimes will scare us off or scare people off, and um, what you've just described is just simply the biblical account, the record, the story, the wonderful truth that God has for his people. So um, where do you start in your book? Um, is it back in Genesis? <laughs> because I haven't read it yet. <laughs> well, actually, I do begin. The book is broken into three parts, uh, three main uh, divisions. It's a collection, actually, of essays that I've written over the years on various aspects of the Doctrine of the Covenant or Covenants in Scripture. But the first part deals with <clears throat> the subject of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, to use the traditional language. The second part of the book are essays dealing with the relationship between covenant and election. And then the third part deals with some more recent discussions relating to the doctrine of the covenant in uh, contemporary theology. But to your question, yeah, I start with what I a little bit earlier referred to as the relationship that God established in creating Adam and Eve as the parents of the whole human race, as the original Adam in particular, the original covenant representative of the human race, is, if you read the account in Genesis, although it's very brief in the first opening chapters, Genesis 1 through 3, there's a beautiful portrait of the intimate unbroken communion that Adam enjoyed together with Eve in fellowship with God. And uh, God, in a manner of speaking, walked with them. And when they sin, that relationship is ruptured. It's broken. Uh, they know their nakedness and shame in the presence of God. They seek to hide from his presence when he comes to them in the garden, which is a representation of a broken relationship 
a relationship that God intended for our well-being and blessedness, but a relationship now which through sin and disobedience has been broken in a way that we cannot repair unless God, in His grace, takes the initiative to come to us graciously, mercifully, to reintroduce and uh, reestablish a communion and fellowship with His people, uh, which He does. That's the story that unfolds in the subsequent chapters of Genesis. I should perhaps note that when I use the language covenant works, as I said earlier, it's traditional language. I'm well aware of the fact that people will object while the term covenant is not used to describe the relationship, at least not in Genesis. And so here you have an example of uh, the theologians uh, superimposing some kind of a covenant scheme on the scriptures. I'm not interested in what Paul calls an argument about words. If you choose not to use the language of covenant to describe that original relationship, you still have to acknowledge that there are all kinds of aspects or features to the relationship that are often in the scriptures, certainly in the context of redemption, described in terms of covenant. It's not accidental that in the last book of the scriptures, the book of Revelation, when you see the vision and visions of the new heavens and new earth, uh, you have language that recalls the original paradise, wherein was, as chapter 3 puts it, the tree of life. And then, especially in chapters 20 to 22, uh, there are all kinds of reminiscences of that beautiful communion and fellowship that was once enjoyed in paradise, but now is realized in a more full and perfected, glorified way in the communion and immediate presence of God and his people in relationship to him uh, in the consummate state when God's saving purpose and work in Christ for his people has been brought to its conclusion or its destiny. Mm. Well, I I like what you're saying. The um, going way back to Adam and Eve, um, the uh, l- really life was was promised to Adam and his posterity, using the language of Westminster, um, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And so that's, uh, I believe, the concept. And you're, you're basically saying, well, if you don't use <laughs> the words covenant of works that's that's what actually was happening there exactly in fact um the language of the the curse or the threat that god announces stipulates in genesis 2 in the day that you eat thereof he puts adam to a test in respect to his obedience by forbidding his eating of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And and then when Adam sins, the judgment, curse, or sanction that God in his justice and truthfulness uh, places upon Adam, and even the whole creation, in a manner of speaking, participates in that, as Paul says in Romans 8. All of that can only, the story of redemption, which is a reversal of the consequence of Adam's disobedience and a, a triumphing by God's grace through the work of Christ and his atonement, relieving us or releasing us from 
the wages of sin or the curse that is due to all who continue not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them, as Paul says in Galatians, quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. It's a story of the renewal, and re- as I've been putting it, and restoration of communion with God, for which we were first created, but in a state, the original state, of mutability. That is to say, Adam was not in a state of perfected glory, where there would be no uh, possibility or threat of the loss of fellowship with God should he sin. Through the work of Christ, the second or eschatological Adam, the greater man from heaven, we are actually brought to eternal life, as Paul says in a very familiar gospel text, Romans 6.13, the wages of sin are death, the free gift of God is eternal life. So it's life in communion, fellowship, restored through Christ with the true and living God, but without any further threat or prospect for God's people of, through sin, uh, losing or being separated again, or no longer in that communion restored through Christ uh, to the believer who embraces the gospel promise in Christ by faith. A question came to my mind that maybe listeners share, and that is, Adam and Eve, um, there in the garden, prior to um, saying no to God and prior to falling, um, they're a little different than you and me, it seems, in that they made this choice, yet we, it says in Romans, are not righteous, and uh, we, uh, we don't seek after God. Our natural setting is what Paul would call spiritual death or an inability to respond to God. And so um, it seems to me that uh, in this covenant of grace, we could say, um, the really wonderful thing is that God himself reaches out to us and we're completely dead, unable, not even wanting God at all. And he does something in our hearts to make us uh, willingly um, reach out to him and believe on him. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? How is Adam and Eve different in their original estate from, from us today? Well, they were in a state of what the theologians often call original right, righteousness, a state of integrity. That is to say, they were without sin. Uh, they were created in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, if I may borrow language from the restoration of the image of God in us through mm-hmm. the work of Christ by His Spirit, the kind of language Paul uses in Galatians and Ephesians. They were in a state of integrity, and they enjoyed um, a real, not broken through sin and disobedience. Now, by virtue of such sin and disobedience, being alienated from God and strangers from His covenant, they were in a living communion with God. The great mystery of sin, there's a mystery of godliness, but there's also a mystery of sin, is how do you account for or explain uh, their act of transgression, and particularly Adam's disobedience, 
given what I've described, there was nothing in them or by virtue of some lack of giftedness or of ability in the sense of their ability to do what God required of them, um, how is it that they sinned? Yeah. I tell my students that if you want an enigma wrapped in a mystery, it's the act of original defiance and disobedience against God. Mm. Now, you can say that, as Augustine once remarked, I'm paraphrasing, that their act, though it was not authored by God, did not take place outside of the will of God in the sense of it was unanticipated or unknown to God in advance of its occurrence. Uh, That would put you in a place where you would have to deny God's omniscience and his uh, all-comprehensive counsel and will, and right. you would have a difficulty even understanding how Peter could say at Pentecost that according to God's determinate <laughs> foreknowledge and counsel, um, he had purpose through the death of his own son, who died at the hand of wicked men, whose guilt in doing what they did with respect to our Lord is undiminished, even though it occurred within the will of God in that general sense, not as though God authored and and did the deed, but it was within God's will uh, from the beginning, so that God foreknew and anticipated this mysterious act of disobedience. One thing you may not say is that God authored uh, Adam's sin or human sin. Right. But it took place, even though that may be for us an enigma beyond our comprehension, within his will, was not in a sense according to his will, Mm -hmm. or in virtue of his effecting the action, as though he were the agent or author. But he certainly, uh, from all eternity, uh, willed to restore that portion of humanity, the new humanity, the elect in Christ, and to give to them what Adam and Eve did not enjoy, which is immutable and unbreakable, secure and certain fellowship with him uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his Spirit not only enables us through the ministry of the Word, the presentation of the Gospel, to respond and uh, willingly embrace what is promised, namely that unbreakable fellowship now regained for us by Christ and communion that Christ effects between us and God the Father by the Spirit who's been given to us, whom Paul says is the Spirit of adoption, whereby we know God as our Father through Christ. Hmm. I'm getting a little away from your question, I recognize, but uh, if your listeners or anyone is looking for someone who can give them a fully satisfactory and uh, easy account of why Adam fell, disobeyed, transgressed, uh, there was nothing lacking in terms of his ability by God's 
favor to do what was required of him, that is to personally and perfectly obey uh, the law, the holy law of God, and to remain in a relationship of fellowship with him. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Today we're talking with Dr. Cornelis Venema, president of Mid-America Reform Seminary, and we have about, uh, oh, about four or five minutes left, Dr. Venema, and we've barely begun to scratch the surface of this important subject. You've written a book, uh, Christ and Covenant Theology. Maybe in these next four or five minutes, you can highlight a couple other areas of your book. Just the classical aspect, I would say, of of what you're putting out there, putting forth uh, in in precise fashion for the readers. Well, the aim of my book is to exalt Christ. The first word in my title is Christ, and it's not to exalt the so-called doctrine of the covenant, uh, not to oppose the two, because as I said earlier, it seems to me the very word mediator which we commonly use, is used also explicitly in the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ, gets at the core of what covenant is all about. God binding himself, uh, committing himself in promise to his people through Christ, and drawing them through Christ and by the word and spirit of Christ back into fellowship with him binding himself to us through Christ and through Christ bringing us, and the Spirit of Christ bringing us into fellowship with himself. Um, Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith uses the language of fruition of blessedness. (laughs) This interesting phrase for us, I suppose. It means a fruitful and blessed enjoyment of fellowship with God, the true and living God. And that's what Christ, through his mediatorial work in its entirety, is all about. He was given us, by God's grace, as an unspeakable gift, as the one who would remedy and reverse and ultimately bring us beyond what even Adam and Eve enjoyed in paradise, and that is a permanent and unbreakable fellowship through him with the true and living God. Um, And if I, in the course of the book, get that across, I don't so much worry about the terminology that people would use or employ, but I do want to defend the language of covenant against uh, those who would say this is taking us away from the simplicity of the gospel and to show that it really is another way of commending Christ as the one through whom, as our mediator, we are brought back into that fellowship with God for which we were first created. Um, I Oftentimes when I'm talking to people about the Doctrine of the Covenant and they look a bit uh, quizzical, I say, well, take the very way in which the book God has given us, which tells us the story of creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately the consummation, how is it titled? Well, it's the Bible, but there are two testaments. There's the older preparatory covenant of the Old Testament portion of the canon, and there's the New Testament, the New Covenant, the fulfillment of the Old 
and all of its promises in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all Christians, whether they explicitly affirm or perhaps even explicitly deny, have to uh, reckon with this is a story about the covenanting God, uh, who's one and the same, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, from the beginning to the end of all of his purposes in the course of redemptive history, who pursues and wills to create, in distinction from himself, a distinct creature who alone bears his image and with whom he aims to enjoy uh, fellowship and communion uh, in covenant. And that is the end point, the telos of all of God's ways in the course of redemptive history to uh, bring us not back to paradise, but ultimately to that consummate paradise regain, which we call, the Bible calls, the new heavens and the new earth. Mm. Well, today we've been talking with Dr. Cornelis Venema. He is president of Mid-America Reform Seminary. He's written a new book, uh, Christ and Covenant Theology. And Dr. Venema, if a listener would like to obtain a copy of this book, where could they go? Well, if they know anything about Amazon, they can go to Amazon.com, and it's it'll be listed there, among a number of other books that I've written, at, I think, a fairly competitive price. Otherwise, I would say the publisher is... Uh, Presbyterian and Reformed. You go to the, to the PNR's website and obtain it that way as well. I'm sure there are bookstores here and there, although I have to acknowledge bookstores these days are dwindling rather rapidly <laughs> because of the ascendancy of Amazon. I, I would say the easiest thing to do is just to go to Amazon.com and click books, put my name in there, and a number of books will come up, including Christ and Covenant Theology. Good deal. And we'll put a link on our website. Mid-America Reform Seminary is a graduate-level theological institution in Dyer, Indiana, and uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, Many men of God have received their training there and from there launched into full-time pastoral ministry. Uh, Dr. Venema, thank you so much for joining us today. I was very happy, as I said earlier, pleased to have the uh opportunity to be involved to participate okay dear listener please join us next week for another edition of a plain answer